the song of death is sweet and endless. But what is this? Somewhere in the sore, bloated man meet around you. A sensation. Like a fly to the ointment, your conscience sticks to it. The limbed and headed machine of pain and undignified suffering is firing up again. It wants to walk the desert, hurting, longing, dancing to disco And welcome back to Furidashi Pod. I'm your host, Lauren Ash, here with the amazing Nicholas. That's me. Yep. And you know what? We've really gotten it down to where he doesn't even question how amazing he is anymore. And I just want to say no. on this happy Valentine's Day-ish week month thing. Um, it's like a week after Valentine's Day when we're recording this. And it's going to come out. The like chocolate is still on sale. <laughs> <laughs> in this in this beautiful chocolate month of chocolate chocolate for those, for those who for those who celebrate saint valentine's month <laughs> learn to love well, yourself and and in the, the concept of, of loving um the last discussion that nicholas and i had was all about political theory and about how right the dynamics of a lot of video games use politics and social dynamics yeah. more as a yeah. backdrop or as a narrative rapper and less to actually make a political we argument we're going to call it a narrative rapper anymore we're going to call it narrative overlay it is a narrative overlay you're right i apologize yeah. calling, you so, calling you out you, no you should you absolutely should because here <laughs> on in this right academy of game design <laughs> we at furidashi right. want to change these definitions or at least like create yes. better more standard ones so yeah people and video game design and I myself, right, uh, easily like having been making games, like there are times when, you know, stuff hits the fan and the narrative overlay just has to come out. And you're like, and, and literally your deadline is like, you know, five minutes from now at 5 p.m. And they're like, we need this sent by 530 in an email. What's the narrative for the entire game experience? And you're like, but we don't have a game experience. <laughs> we don't there is no game <laughs> i can't tell you what the game I, I, is i can't tell you what the narrative is if i don't, I don't even know what the game is so i think what's interesting right is that narrative overlays happen a lot because it's like we've made this really cool property but um and sometimes in, in old dev like people would say oh but there's no reason to play let's throw some narrative on there and i'm like that's oh gosh that's even worse so there's all these layers and in this right um a game yeah. that i really feel did not just the narrative like impeccably like in line by line the writing was amazing but yeah. the actual use of politics of the entire narrative of the game the mystery the secrets the story yeah. was really interwoven with the systems 
right? Yes. And the systems themselves were strong. It wasn't just like, oh, the systems were lacking, but narrative held them up. And it wasn't just, oh, narrative's lacking, but the systems hold it up. The game that I gifted to Nicholas was Disco Elysium. <laughs> and so I yeah. have been ta- wanting to talk about this game ever since I played it. Um, and so I am super excited to be continuing this discussion. And Nicholas, I just want to you know, come out and ask you, like, what are your thoughts? What did you like about the game? And, you know, uh, the game was like, really boring. I didn't really play it. It sucked. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Everybody stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Okay. So. Um, oh, and also boring, how far, how yeah. far are you actually? Because see, I finished not ter- this. So. Not terribly far. I've, I've, I've played for about. What day are you on? Three. Day three. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I played for about maybe nine ish hours. Um, but, the, and, but there's a reason for that. It's because um, one of my favorite, uh, the latest installment in one of my favorite game series uh, recently c- came out. And so I've been playing a lot of um, Total War Warhammer 3, even though the game is kind of crap in a lot of ways. I still love it. I still love making my little dudes and my armies go around and conquer stuff. And so I just couldn't help it. However, before that happened, <laughs> on actually on Valentine's, I think on Valentine's Day, you bought it for me. Um there, don't read into that. There is nothing in that whatsoever, people. Anyways, the point is, she well, bought it for me, and I and I played ship it. You chocolate, you know, like yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. You could have, but you didn't. You bought me a game, which was very nice because I, I'm not going to get into it. But I had a bit of a hell week last week for a whole host of reasons. Um, but the thing about Disco Elysium that really sort of like caught me immediately was the way in which the sort of like the back end of the game, like the rule set, the game mechanics are actually foregrounded in the gameplay. And what's interesting is how in the game narrative is not just this like nice overlay, this sort of pretty packaging for everything. Narrative is the means by which the game mechanics are made apparent. And that. I mean, aside from like, you know, the cool stuff, how you can be like a turbo feminist and you can be all, there's all sorts of ways in which you can like really non-traditional sort of like role-playing things that you can do in the game. But to me, the thing that caught me immediately was the, was that was the way in which the game for, so, you know, you pick your character type and your, you know, whichever character type you go for, whether it's Inland Empire, which is what I did or whatever, it then immediately shows you like the characteristics that you now possessed, it shows you how those characteristics interact with the world and it shows them to you by way of the narrative, because it's not just like, you know, when you're playing a game of D and D and all of a sudden, like, you know, there's this out of character moment where your DM comes up to you and says, Oh, make a perception check or, you know, roll for attack. The, that stuff is actually integrated into the world system inside your character's head and the sort of weird, like, Am, am I going crazy? Am yes. I not going crazy? Oh, like, I mean, like, for anyone who hasn't game. played Disco Elysium, it is, um, it's best described, I think, like simply as a kind of like a detective novel where you're the detective and you're kind of that savoir faire, you know, Sherlock Holmes. You're the gumshoe. You're the gumshoe. Yeah. And you're, you're, and your gum. <laughs> you're that detective who, you know, you know everything, but you're suffering from amnesia. So actually you don't really know anything. And also there's the mystery that you need to solve and uncover, but the, and it takes place in a very kind of like dystopic world that's similar 
to our own, but so, similar. Yeah. And there so is the, like yeah. other reality that they've really created as a parallel of our own reality. And it has its own like rules. It has its own systems, say within the narrative, like there's a narrative yeah. rule set, right? Which is important because Dungeons and Dragons, I think is a really great backdrop for this is it also has, right, a narrative rule set alongside, right, the game systems and the game mechanics. And yeah. with Disco Elysium, the primary way of moving throughout the world is through interacting with objects and interacting with people and the primary yep. choices for propelling the narrative forward or to be doing dialogue choice. So this is a very easy game for me to say that obviously the narrative and the systems are aligned, but yeah. in unlike Dragon Age, right? Or Knights of the Old Republic where dialogue choices is D&D, like you kind of know you're putting things into stats, but there's yeah, a level yeah. of separation between them. Nicholas is talking about how the, the inner monologue of your head, your character will stare into space because you are talking to yourself in your head that other characters will be like, uh, uh, Lieutenant, are you, are you <laughs> staring <laughs> yeah. there for like uh, a minute? And you're like, uh, I'm fine. Everything's okay. I'm not, uh, or you can go crazy. Like you can create a crazy yeah. response. That's like, Oh, you know, I was just talking to myself. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, there, run and, away. And there is that weird way in which then, like, even when you say something completely like ridiculous, there is this interesting way in which like characters always rationalize it. In other words, even when you try to bring like the sort of the narrative overlay, the the thing that's going on in your head into the world, then the narrative itself finds a way to integrate that. In other words, it never allows it to be. The fancy neurological term for this is extra diegetic. So everything becomes diegetic. Everything becomes part of like the storytelling mode that the world itself exists yeah. in. In other words, there isn't sort of an aloof narrator who has this kind of like omniscient detachment. There is the seemingness of that. There's the appearance of that in the way in which like this voice maybe your own voice, maybe not talks in your head, but it keeps getting pulled into the world. In other words, that narrative voice doesn't get to be separate. And it's interesting because that narrative voice is also explicitly identified with the game systems, with the actual like underlying rule set of the game. And so if that is, so if that narrator, if that narrative voice is being pulled into the world, it also means that rule set is actually being pulled into yeah. the world as well. And what's great about it is that the, so we mentioned Inland Empire, which is, you would call it a psychological stat. It allows you to kind of think yeah. about the world in a bigger way, right? And kind of like yeah. empathetically, yeah. empathy is also a statement, right? Like you can put yourself in someone else's shoes, right? Yep. And those two are psychology skills or psych skills. So you can put yeah. points in psych. Now, all of the those types of skills seem to play well together, right? As, as in terms of they're all psych. But what you'll find throughout playing the game is that like Inland Empire and conceptualization, they're like best friends. Right. Conceptualization yeah. is like an intelligence score. They really love to talk to each other. But sometimes Inland Empire will say, hey, man, you really need to tell them this. But then your intelligence is like, yo, no, 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 no. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. And no, then yeah, yeah. the other side of your brain, right, from Motorix is like, just shoot him. You know what? Just shoot him. You know what? Yeah, yeah. No, don't shoot him. Strength <laughs> comes in. Oh, but we can take him. Intelligence. Yeah. Could you just rhetoric just talk your way out can we just stop it <laughs> and so nicholas is laughing because this has happened in the game and the higher you yeah. get your skills and the more clothes you wear which increases those skills right yeah. like you can put your inland empire tie on and you're like 
Logic and I hat. love that it's, it's clothes. It's not actually like armor or no, anything. No, no, it's like clothes. That. Clothes have stats. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I'm and since we're on day three, I'm not going to. I don't want to say anything about about anything. Yeah. But I do think that what's amazing is that there you put the clothes on your body, and the way you look to others, they will comment on your clothes. But they also then right some of your clothes will have better benefits um, for those, and then some you also can improve your skills with things called like thoughts and your thought cabinets. You can kind of ruminate on a thought and then come to a conclusion, which is right. How you can become a turbo feminist. And I think that what was interesting about dishonored, right. Is that we really saw more of these things as less of a social critique and more as an overlaid critique or an assumption, not a critique, but an assumptious bias, right. That's put into that game to create a certain narrative kind of like Milou. But in this game, I, I also see that being brought to the table, but I'm very curious what Nicholas's thoughts of how the, so far, right? How the execution of those have kind of gone in. Well, the difference between this and Dishonored, again, like I should note that even though I was a little critical of Dishonored and the way in which it tries to sort of like bring its world of politics to life, I actually still really liked the game. The problem, the fundamental problem with me was the way in which like, the the subject position that you were put in through gameplay, in other words, what you actually do as Corbo, <clears throat> is detached from like the the narrative and the worldview that is being like imposed upon that. In other words, it's essentially even even though Corvo is this like has a kind of background identity that is revealed throughout the course of the game functionally in terms of gameplay you are a quake character you are a character you are the you are the thief you are the dude in thief you yeah, are the dude yeah. in Hexen. you are the dude in every first person shooter who is this kind of empty vessel that you pour stat points into in order you know, to like level up whatever skills you want no I, exactly and you know what i actually wanted to really get into that because harry or harrier or whatever we call yeah. him <laughs> uh, but Harry has a personality and has a character. And what yeah. I think is amazing yeah. is that when you start as the player, you've forgotten your name. Mm-hmm. And you can actually yeah. say, uh, I'm, you just make up a name. You can say, you know what? I forgot my name. That's how much amnesia I, I, I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I just did that. I was like, you know what? I don't know. I don't know my name. And literally the, the you're meeting, um, you know, one of the best uh, video game companions I've ever had in my entire career as a video game person, Kim Kitsuragi. He's great. Kim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> big, big, big heart, big heart for for the lieutenant. Big heart for the lieutenant. We all have it, and and I actually want to like, I, at, at some point, I'm gonna have to write my thoughts out a little bit more coherently rather than just like yes and Stan. But I think for me that Kim Kitsuragi really exemplifies because he's never met Harry before that. Yeah. There is a reputation, the detective that you play, Harry, detect- Lieutenant, right? Harry, you have yes. a reputation. You don't know what it is yet. But you kind of do as a player, right? You kind of know, okay, maybe you're the Sherlock or the asshole. You're the your house. You know, like you're this type of detective. Yeah. And the yeah. stats and the um, characters that you could choose, right? If you choose the mentalist or you choose the empath or you choose like the brute detective, right? You can play these different types of kind of narratives or and you get skills from that like almost immediately right yeah and so i think what's great about that is you have not just a systemic identity that's telling you like hey you're a really great detective and you're like your methods are unclear and ridiculous <laughs> yeah. but you yes. still get the job done 
right? So that's narratively reinforced. It's enforced yep. systemically. You choose stats and kind of even if you do custom stats, right, they are your own method. That's your own character. Well, also right? because you, you acquire those stats through the narrative. You, you don't acquire you don't acquire them just by like, oh, hey, you, you sporadically acquired enough points. Now you have leveled up. Now you can put those points wherever the hell you feel like it. Like, no, me, in order, you, you actually get more experience by like engaging with the story and engaging with yeah, everyone exactly, else's yeah. stories, right? Exactly. And like yeah. the more you engage with the story and the more you engage with the narrative, right? The more you progress your own like abilities, but you can choose to like increase those like existing stats. You can choose it to balance it out. Like that's what I did is I chose the mentalist. So I think I had really high motorics and really high yeah. int, but my empathy. Yeah. And my like physicality, like I actually died in the first day, like in the first 30 minutes because I tried to jump off a roof and I just, I mentally was too afraid to do it. So I didn't. And then I think that like I failed my endurance check because I smelled something so horrid that I just gave up on being a cop. I was like, you know what? This job is too smelly for me. And I was And so it's really, so that, that is actually, uh, I mean, that's not quite the point I was trying to make here, but I bring that up because that is something that was very dissonant for some people that aren't used to kind of the choose your own adventure style, right? I think that was simplified in this game. So maybe I will just end it there because I think like I felt, I kind of felt like I knew that that was going to happen going into this because it is like a stats narrative game, a choose your own adventure, just yeah. reload your last save. But some some gamers just hate save reloading. It's called apparently it's called save scumming. Yeah, there. Yeah, save scumming is a thing. I don't understand. I like, I don't under who has time to be like, oh no, I've wasted well, fifty hours. I gotta gotta start my whole game again because the it's broken in the universe. Well, it's like these people who think that like the only valid form of gameplay is if you do like hardcore mode or shit like that, and it's it's weird because it's like. If it's in the game, the developers intended for it to be in the game. It is a way to play the game. Not not only so- is it a way to play the game, <laughs> I think I have over 200 save slots in Disco Elysium. Because you can just new save every time, and they yeah. will never stop you. So to go back to the fact that I'm playing Warhammer 3, like I save scum all the time because, like, you know... I, I screw up <laughs> like, and I, and I don't in fact actually, cause the thing is like campaigns in that game are ridiculously long. They are hundreds of turns and I don't personally want to have to completely start over a campaign just because I kind of messed up. It's why I don't play on legendary when I play the game. Cause it's stupid to me personally, other people enjoy that. I don't, but so I'm going to do a bit of a sort of like mid episode promotion for our um, $15 tier on patreon.com forward slash foodie dashi. Not just because I'm, you know, being a shill for our, our products, but because in the, the course that we're doing right now, in the most recent episode, I actually talked about this. And so I was talking specifically about the game, um, the veil shadow of the crown. And the thing that I personally liked about it, even though I had some quibbles with it is the way in which like, you experience the sort of the tutorial experience of the game is mapped onto the way in which the character you inhabit, Alex herself 
learns how to fight. And so in a similar way in Disco Elysium, like even though it has the, the kind of like, I don't know, cheap amnesia trope, again, it's the same principle. Like you are learning through the course of the narrative how you are becoming the character that you will be in that narrative. Like that is really well done. That is what makes it engaging for people who really like dense, thick, rich narrative experiences who, who aren't necessarily like as hopped up on, you know, like Twitch mechanics and things like that. That's not me. I mean, even though I do like to play for, I play a lot of first person games. Um, I like those games, but at the same time, I don't always want to be playing those games. Yeah. I also like the the other thing as well. And I would agree that, and I would say that it's not just a first person game that has the Twitch mechanics. It's just the ones that are most apparent that have Twitch mechanics. Yeah, yeah. I would that's, say that like true, yeah. you want, and people who play or enjoy Twitch mechanics probably also enjoy right other like slower paced games or if you've played board games yeah. with your friends and you also play like these other like games yeah. are meant to be enjoyed from a variety of people and i guess that like coming coming into that and coming in from like that course if we talk about we're currently looking at character and identity and i actually really yeah. really really wanted to talk about character in this episode with disco elysium because we've been talking a lot about um, like political theory and we haven't yeah. gotten into that yet and we do we have 10 minutes here so whatever <laughs> well, maybe we'll get to that but I really wanted to talk about character and identity because the whole thing that really sells you into this game narrative is the fact that you don't know yourself and you have to uncover the mystery of yourself but yes. while solving a mystery while the mystery of your companion right that is following you is next to you and then the game's yeah. like hey but don't worry once he goes to bed, you can always sneak out at night. Like you don't have to, right? So now you're like, wait, now there's this secret. There's this mystery, right? It's layering mystery on top of mystery that is immediately engaging and hooking player interest. We talk yeah. a lot about in game development, especially in open world level design, we talk a lot about Breath of the Wild, right? And Horizon Zero Dawn, which uh, Forbidden West had just released this month as well. And we talk a lot about how do you get players invested in a huge open world without being overwhelmed. And the biggest way to get someone invested is to tell them there's a secret, right? To tell them there's a mystery. There's just, just go over that waterfall, right? Yeah. And then present the player with two. Well, now maybe they'll make the wrong choice, but in a very good open world environment, right? You're going to engage the player and hook their interest. And I think that, what Revachol does an amazing job of is that it feels like an open world and a small, um, even though it's a small footprint, because the density yeah. of character and interaction is is huge. And each person yeah. you, in you interact with, every single person you interact with has a connection to either the mystery that you're trying to solve, the mystery of yourself. They also might have a mystery to a side quest you may or may not uncover right? It's a secret. Everyone is inviting you and going, hey, who am I? While you're also, as a player, slowly being drip-fed information about who you are. And so now you're going, if I talk to this person, maybe they know who I am. But if they don't know who I am, then I'm going to know about them, which will tell me more about the place that I'm in. So the yeah. game is constantly inviting you through not just character interaction and like the main mechanics of just interacting with people and interacting with the world, but yeah. but also asking you like which secret will you uncover like today in this next fifteen minutes, right? And then yeah. while it's tied into the global mystery of like the entire mystery thing, 
all of the characters have their own mysteries that either feed into it, are parallel to it, maybe a large portion of it. I don't, and I think that that's, that's really what gets me because it's not just the characterization of yourself and how you as the player interact with it. It's this dialogue between you as who am I the player? Who am I playing? I need to continually change that based on my, as a response to the people I'm interacting with. Or maybe I don't do that, right? And now that still makes a statement. And I don't know, everything makes a statement in the game. <laughs> so it's just, ugh. Well, that's my thoughts. Well, no, no, no. I, I think I, no. I think you've actually touched on something that's really v- very fundamental. Because the thing is, when people say open world, generally what they're talking about are environments. They're talking about game volumes. They're talking about spaces through which your avatar will move. What they're generally not talking about is the sort of like social structure of how that environment is developed, like in narrative terms. And so the thing is you can have a game with a relatively small footprint and it can feel really rich and it can feel like a world precisely because it feels like a world in the same way we as human beings interact with the world. In other words, we don't experience our lives on this planet as just like bodies moving through spaces. That's not what our lives are. Our lives are the, the spaces are areas in which like interactions are contained and the more like fleshed out those interactions are, the more long-term they are, the more they develop over time, the more like interest that can be garnered through like, you know, as Lauren pointed out, like not necessarily telling somebody everything, but to definitely telling them that there is a there there, like that is what makes it feel like a world. And so if you think about like, you know, some of the like worst open world like MMOs or at least some of the worst zones in MMOs. The one that springs immediately to mind is like Hillsbrad in WoW or even the Barons in WoW where like it's a giant zone but there's kind of not anything there. And in fact, in the specific case of World of Warcraft, like players had to inhabit the Barons. Players had to make the Barons worthwhile through their social interactions with each other, through things like PvP and all that. It was actually the people and their social interactions that filled that space because without them, it's boring as hell. Yeah, (laughs) no, and I think what's great about it is that when you look at really good open world design, it encapsulates not just the narrative of a place, but it encapsulates like if it is a multiplayer game, like the people that are going to be in it. And I think a really great recent example of a of a modern MMO that I know everybody has been playing, uh, Lost Ark, just it falls into all of these terrible traps for open world yeah. design where the, I don't know, almost in a good way, ugh, the, <laughs> all, the, all the zones are single player levels that you pass people around, like you pass people while you're all questing so in a good way uh, well it's like diablo it's like diablo in that way and i i know that it's really taken a lot from diablo specifically in 19 like 94 um (laughs) and i and i get that but i i want to compare right this this good mmo with an amazing like right they have great combat mechanics to right uh my favorite open world which is actually deus ex mankind divided the city of Prague is such a small and rich and deep and constantly changing open world throughout that whole environment that because it is such a small space, I've started calling things like that a small world, right? Or a <laughs> yeah. window world where it is an open world. It's just not large, 
right? And I think that yeah. I would rather play a really richly deep space with envir- changes that are in, like environmental based on my yeah. actions than say like a huge game like Breath of the Wild. Like I think that for me it's just – or Skyrim, right? Skyrim is kind of the quintessential what people think of as an open world. But what they really mean is a sandbox, right? Yeah. And Revachol is a little bit of both. You know, like you can sandbox your way through encounters, but it's, you know, it's more open world in that there are things to uncover at every turn. Well, so to go back to a point that you made about sort of like using like little mysteries to like entice players into like actually interacting with the world and interacting with things. Like one of the things that's really great about the world of Disco Elysium is the fact that like it has a history. It has a very specific history and it's a history that you can only learn really through gameplay. Um, And because of that, it means that the history of that world is one of those mysteries. It is one of those little mysteries that you can go out and explore in depth. You don't actually have to, but you can. And as a result, like it then feeds back into all of sort of like the narrative. So in other words, like the macrocosmic like story then feeds back into the microcosmic story that you're experiencing, you know, and the mystery that you have to solve and your interactions with specific players. It also helps to explain why like there are certain like archetypes that you can adopt in the game because it it's a it's a for those of you who aren't familiar with disco elysium the world exists in a kind of it's not really post-apocalyptic it's most more like post-revolutionary but the revolution failed and so the thing is like all of the like political ideologies that sort of built up to that still exist but they exist in a kind of like a degenerate form in other words they exist in they exist in a form where like they don't quite work in the existing world and they're and like it's interesting. So like, so for me, you know, when I stumbled into being a turbo feminist, like you have to figure out a way to make that work in this world that is going to then antagonize in some way the choices that you make. Yeah. And I think that what's interesting is that like, I know, sorry, I am just like, I, I'm, I'm really, I, when I love games, like it's hard for me to <laughs> choose one thing to say. So I'm like trying yeah, yeah. not to say all of it because I know we've touched <laughs> on so much. But what, what you hit on right there for like the post-revolutionary Ravishal and all of your political ideolo- ideologies being there, right, is that there is this overarching political ideology call or faction, right, called the moral yeah. intern. And that's kind of the yeah. humanitarian – you know, peaceful, the status quo is what we should do, right? Like this obviously is the liberals, it's the liberals, it's the liberals right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, no, but what's interesting is that then the liberals, right, are fighting and or working with, right? Um, they have like an antagonizing faction. The ultra liberals are not a poor or the moral intern. And those are actually the capitalists because yeah. they profited the most from the post, right, from the revolution because they just sold weapons and then like, we're like, nope, but we actually bought the best weapons because we are the money people <laughs> and then they killed the revolution. The people yeah. that were somewhat a part of the revolution, like the royalists, but also like they aligned with like the fascists and we all know those are the bad guys. <clears throat> people. Yeah, don't play as fascist kids, even when you get the option in the game. Yeah, even when you fasc- get the option in the game, even when you accidentally pick the option because you just were like, oh, this person wants to be like pro Revachal, I'll just talk about how I'm pro Revachal. Oh, God, what? No, <laughs> no, I'm not it. Are you sure? Yeah, I am hella sure. I'm not even going down that pathway. And 
there's that uh, there's a system in the game where when you choose dialogue options, which is your mechanic, the system will say flag that dialogue option as hey, you've chosen a fascist option, you've chosen a capitalist option, or an ultra liberal yeah. option. Ultra liberal, yeah. Um, you've yeah. chosen a, a liberal option. You've chosen the humanist options, right? And every single one of those, then the system will go, hey, you chose, you know, to be um, a communist. That's also an option. Did you want to be a communist? Because now we're going to give you the option to think about being a communist, right? Yeah. And I wanted to be a communist, but I didn't. Yeah, no, not in this world. Um, or not in that I'm already, world. I'm, I'm already. <laughs> like, why do I want to be a communist in a game? Yeah, you're like, this is ridiculous. Um, I do think it, and it opens up in Final Cut, uh, whereas in, I think the original game, there was one ending. In Final Cut, it actually opens up four more unique endings for a total of five endings, depending on every single right option, which means that yeah. if you do choose right the the ultra liberal path you could actually create maybe an alternative ending and or like a side ending right like you at least get more content more story and yeah. i think that it's such an amazing like feat to release a game once and then to have it be so renowned like or well received you release it twice with more content and complete voice <laughs> acting like i cannot imagine um this game without the voice acting and can we talk about the voice acting which is just briefly because we're getting we're getting to time here we're getting to time um, here but it's disco elysium disco get, lives the, forever <laughs> the voice acting in the game is so well because the thing is like voice acting in games can like can often be extremely like melodramatic borderline maudlin it can be very over the top and I, I still enjoy it when it's over the top but it's but the voice acting in this game definitely has that kind of like film noir quality to it where it's like everybody is talking in a way where like, you know, there's more to what they're saying and you know, they're holding back and like the restraint, like that kind of voice acting is actually more difficult to do than the, Hey guys, I'm laser wizard and I'm going to laser wizard you down. Like that's actually really easy to do because it's really kind of kitschy and sort of like, and this game could have <laughs> been a little kitschy, like, because I mean, it's have, it have, yeah. Elysium, but it, it wasn't kitschy or like, even if the fashion is kitschy, it like is unironically kitschy. If that well, makes sense, it, like well, no, because it has a kind of like um, maybe like Balkans slash Eastern European feel to it, where like that kind of is that world where you know you have both sort of like like Western styles and Western fashions, but they are kind of muted and mutated in interesting ways, and so like mm -hmm. yeah, it it may look kitschy, but. I don't know. To me, it just kind of felt like, like, this could be in yeah, Yugoslavia. I, <laughs> no, it, it could be. And I think that that's what makes it really incredible is that I feel like you couldn't get such a politically driven game released from a United States developer in the United States market. Probably and not, no, no. And it's, it's unfortunate because, like, it's not that we don't have these political ideologies in America, as you've heard on this podcast several times, <laughs> um, but it is that the political ideologies coming out of a more Western European or an American studio, like a like Dishonored. I hate saying it because I actually love that game, and I think we all agree that Dishonored still a good is an game. amazing yeah, still, game. Still a good game. Yeah. But like when we look at the way a game is made at that you know AAA non indie level. And the, using a political ideology as a narrative overlay, I was expecting this game to also have them as just overlays. Like yeah. each character, you know, this character is a fascist. And honestly, like I would be like, please leave. I hate you. But there are actually yeah. a couple of characters you meet that you don't know are fascists until you realize they're hanging out with a fascist. And then you're like, oh, you sweet old lady, please don't 
you can't actually think this way. And then you realize that they're just all really old, except for their friend who definitely, I, let's just say you can screw him over in a very, very big way. And oh, I did all of the ways and not the fun kind. And so I made sure, uh, yeah. And then I was like, hey, you shouldn't be friends with this guy. Um, but what, what's interesting is that each character, even when they have that political ideology in this world, you can comment that that ideology is stupid to their face, which is amazing, right? And then second yeah. is your companion character or your lieutenant, Kim Kitsuragi, will also then go and be really appreciative of that because he is one of the, in, in this, like, uh, his ethnicity or his ancestry or his genealogy. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's weird. Yeah. Ugh. Um, but it's not, it's not the, the game creators, as in... Okay, let me rephrase this. It's not the game creator's biases that are coming out from the genre, which you get to see in more AAA products, if that makes sense. It's very easy to see that if a character is drawn a certain way or they are animated a certain way, that an un uncommon or an, what is it? An un unconditional, unconscious, unconscious bias yeah. came out through the creation of the project. You can see potentially that there was the unconscious bias maybe coming through some of these dialogue lines, but... At the same time, it was through that lens of this is just a really sweet old lady who her entire life has been a fascist and she doesn't know it. And you can't tell her she's being that way to her face. And she'll go, oh, well, I'm sorry, but obviously, like, this is my viewpoint. And you can just be like, well, I'm leaving this conversation. <laughs> and then you leave it. And then, you're, you know, your, your friend is like, thanks for um, leaving that. <laughs> that was terrible, right? And I think yeah. what's interesting is that they – Unlike caricatures, right? I still really care for the old lady because I'm like, damn, you are going through some terrible times right now. And I didn't realize you had these viewpoints. I corrected those viewpoints. You told me that. Thank you for the correction. But no. And I went, you know, we're going to we are now going to write go our separate political ways. I will never see yeah. you again. And even even after all of that, I can't spoil it. But even after all of that. My companion character, very obviously, truthfully and correct, correctly anti-fascist, <laughs> even said, hey, we should check up on her because she was going through some shit, like, later on. And I was like, wow, you were such a decent human that this person didn't know they were offending you because they were trying to tell you the truth as some extreme political ideologies will do it. And you still yeah. care because you're an amazing person, Lieutenant Kitsuragi. How dare you be so good? Um, or maybe deluded. I, would, I might little, argue deluded. No, a it's deluded. May, well, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> well, we're gonna. Well, that's the mystery we're gonna have to leave you all. Oh, with. and that's the cliffhanger. Ah, cat, stop it! Oh. Oh, my cat is attacking me. <laughs> um, so, thank you so much for for joining us this week. Um, for those of you who don't know, we have um, biweekly Patreon episodes that you can get by signing up at patreon.com forward slash foodiedashi. Um, that will cost you $5 a month. You can also sign up for our awesome, amazing first class on character and identity. That's at the $15 level. And also at the $15 level, you get all of the free episodes and like lower tier content as well so you're not just getting the class you're also getting all the the other cool fun free stuff lauren is there anything you would like to leave the fine folks with before we go no on that note i think you sums it up very well uh the last thing that i actually will have to say and this will be the first time i've ever said it this word and the last time i've ever said it but everyone <laughs> out there remember never fuck with kim kitsuragi